Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you are today listening to Glocal News and Social Artistry, where we get to talk to people that are building a more humane world from the inside out. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and my guest today is a dear old friend who grew up in Columbia, Missouri, uh, Art Gafke. Art, are you on the line? Good morning. <laughs> and it's a little yeah. earlier morning for you than me. Good morning, Art. What's it like out there in, uh, are you in Reno? Right next to Reno, and called Sparks, and you can't tell when you leave one and get into the other. Uh-huh. It's, it's a chilly morning, some snow in the mountains just to the west. Uh-huh. We're, we're at about uh, just short of 5,000 feet in elevation, so it's a, called a high desert. And I understand you do some hiking out there. Yes, it's a wonderful place for hiking <laughs> year-round. Well, I, I appreciated the time that uh, Marsha and I got to do some hiking with you uh, when you were close, or you were in Las Vegas at the time, uh, you and Elena. So uh, hasn't we haven't really gotten together since then. And no, I've looked you, forward to this time. Well, I'm glad to be with you today, Dick. Uh, did you grow up? I mean, were you born in Columbia? No, I was born in Ironton. Oh. Lived in Fredericktown, Missouri. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Until we moved to southern Wisconsin for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. So in 1951, we moved to Columbia. Okay. And uh, then we uh, I, I almost met. One time when the Boy Scouts were planting trees uh, under your father's supervision on some big track of land, I think maybe north of Columbia. And then I think the next time was uh, probably Wesley Foundation, Methodist Church, uh, 1962. Yep, university years. Yeah, those were exciting times. Important, important years, indeed, indeed. Did you know in, uh, well, let me ask it a different way. Uh, you've been a, a a Methodist minister your, I'd say, most of your life. <laughs> uh, when did you get the call for that? Well, during those Wesley years, I knew I wanted to uh, extend my theological education, and so I went to seminary, mm -hmm. thinking maybe campus ministry, but during that time in my field ed assignments in local churches, I decided uh, that pastoring was my vocation. Mm -hmm. So I was first ordained in the uh, Missouri East Annual Conference of the Church in 60, 1968, uh, 66. Oh, okay. And then moved from seminary to uh, Central California became a clergy in the uh, California-Nevada Annual Conference. And in 1968, the Methodist Church became the United Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. so, Which is uh, uh, the time that I arrived in California for, <laughs> with a different calling. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the draft had called me a couple of years prior to that. And... Uh, and we got to meet again uh, through circumstances related to all of that. Uh, 
which I, I look back fondly at our time together and, and hiking in the mountains and all the things that uh, that brought us closer together. Uh, yeah, your challenge, your calling was much more challenging than mine. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I just had to make one decision and uh, uh, follow stick to it, and and yeah, and stick <laughs> through it. Right. You you were making decisions every day. Uh, oh yeah. What what's fascinating as we're getting together again here on the the radio. Uh, I didn't know that you had written a book on, uh, well, called Strong Ministry. I knew you had written, put together several of your prayer uh, books and published them. Uh, I think you have four different uh, collections of prayer books. Is that correct? Two. Two prayer books. Two. One, yeah, one pastoral prayer is from my... uh three years at University United Methodist Church in Las Vegas, and then a book of uh, prayers of confession from my two years at in Bakersfield at First United Methodist. So this strong ministry, uh, as I'm reading through it, I haven't quite finished it, has a lot to do with the label organizing. And I grew up there in uh, the Wesley Foundation learning about community organizing, and we had several friends, uh, mutual friends, that uh, got into that work or were in that work here in Columbia during that time. When did you get introduced to organizing? I was the founding director of the uh, urban ministry in Fresno, California. I was uh, encouraged to be trained in community organizing, so I the summer of 1971, I spent two months in Chicago with the Industrial Areas Foundation and then went back to Fresno, and uh, those skills were immediately applicable mm-hmm. and fruitful. Mm-hmm. And then I began to uh, recognize that the basic principles of organizing are very helpful for pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a friend of mine and I called together uh, professional organizers and pastors with organizing experience. We had two different retreats with those people to talk about how to configure a book. Oh, mm-hmm. And so the manuscript was written and widely distributed through the United Methodist, the Board of Global Ministries, Urban Ministry Office, but never formally published. Interesting. And that was back in 1990. And when I retired in 2009, I uh, dived back into it and rewrote it for formal publication. Well, I'm so glad you did. Particularly, (laughs) I mean, there's a lot going on in our world today as we speak. And I mean, 2020 kind of started with a bang, both in the Methodist Church and uh, and and around the world, as we're even talking today about uh, Iran and and Iraq and and all the tensions that are there. But all of this, in in some way. comes together with this 
this term organizing and and you have in the in the book the principles uh, 17 or so principles of organizing and and what's so fascinating to me is how if you have that training it gives you a whole different perspective on how how to look at things and it seems to be better <laughs> yeah it's been very helpful in all of my assignments which have been quite distinct from each other mm-hmm. uh, for a while i was what united methods called a district superintendent that is assisting the bishop in a particular geography to uh, oversee supervise local churches and the clergy and my organizing perspective i think was very helpful in that mm-hmm. and then when i worked for the uh, general board of higher education ministry i was called the director of supervision and support systems for mm-hmm. united methodist clergy and i think my perspective helped me in my development of that office and offerings mm-hmm. you know i'm i was only with uh you all at the United Methodist Church here in Columbia my freshman year because I transferred to Southern Methodist University. But that first year, there were pretty amazing things going on. Uh, We went to, well, we went to Chicago to the Ecumenical Institute, which uh, was, in a sense, uh, a community organizing uh, place, wasn't it? You recall that trip? Yeah, it had a very different style than I'm trained to now. But uh, yeah, I have memory of that trip and the movie we saw about the uh, the last cowboy and the, high uh, noon <laughs> crash. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so when you went back to Chicago, who's the famous community organizer out of Chicago? Uh, Saul Alinsky. Yeah, Alinsky was he. Was that his group that you were trained by? Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. And he he was there. He died the uh, in 1972. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was not the primary trainer by that point. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, and that organization is still being very helpful across the country in a lot of uh, indigenous community organizations. Uh, one that I helped start in southern Nevada uh, is related to the Industrial Areas Foundation. It's called Nevadans for the Common Good. Mm-hmm. And it's made up currently of just under 50 uh, congregations, synagogues, mosques, uh, nonprofit uh, corporations. So when you, uh, in your book, say something like uh, a pastor is not a community organizer, Correct. But, but can use the principles of organizing in pastoral functions. Why do you make that distinction? Well, the organizer as a profession is very specialized and is not the, the out-front leader. The uh-huh. organizer works with leaders, but uh, generally does not show up in press releases or public uh, gatherings. Mm, okay. Uh, the organizer is uh, somewhat like the sheepdog, mm-hmm. and uh, that's a very uh, specialized profession. And when mm-hmm. it's done well, it is superb. 
Hmm. And I have been around organizers who are not competent at that, and it's uh, hmm. uh, really distressing. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But the pastor is an out front leader. Gotcha. I can, it's very clear now that you clarified that, and <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Were you at one time uh, working out of the Methodist headquarters in Nashville? Well, there, in the United Methodist Church, there are 13 general agencies, and I was with one of them called okay. the General Board of Higher Education and Ministries. So. Mm-hmm. That agency uh, related to all the United Methodist uh, colleges, universities, schools, hmm. and to the, uh, the clergy. And there's another general agency related to finance, another related to uh, programming uh, and mission. So there are several agencies and some of them have their offices in Nashville, not all. I see. Mm -hmm. So when we're reading in the news recently that the United Methodist Church is, has decided to split, what does that mean? And, and, and who would, who would be involved in making such a decision? And uh, this is big, isn't it? Oh, it's huge, and there's been no decision split. The decision-making body is called General Conference, and there are a thousand delegates that gather Mm -hmm. uh, generally every four years, and the four-year gathering is this May. Oh. And half of them are clergy and half are lay from uh, the annual conferences all over the world. Mm-hmm. And it will be that body that makes decisions. There's recently been news of a uh, gathering with a mediator to mediate the differences. And uh, it's the news of that gathering that that group decided that there would be a split. Oh. And that the, uh, those who are... Uh, not open to uh, uh, gay involvement in church leadership Mm -hmm. would uh, break away and form their own denomination. Mm -hmm. But that's a law. There are many uh, legal, constitutional, and when I say constitutional, church constitutional Mm -hmm. uh, dynamics related to that. So we're a long way away from uh, what will actually be happening in May. Well, I'm glad to hear you clarify that because I I think most of us just read a headline and figured this was a done deal somehow. Well, and it it's part of the uh, broader political uh, conflicts in our society beginning back in the 30s various industrialists uh, opposed the Roosevelt uh, building up of uh, the national government. Mm-hmm. And they began to recruit church people to oppose that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that developed further and further. There's a book called uh, One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Built Christian America. My goodness. I need to write that down. That. One Nation and, uh, Under God. Um, yes. How Corporate America 
created Christian America. Fascinating title. And out of that uh, came an organization funded out of the uh, far right called the uh, Institute for Religion and Democracy. And it had a goal of uh, disrupting mainline Protestant denominations that were more siding with the uh, help government be a savior for people. Mm -hmm. And so attacks were launched in the Episcopal Church, which we know eventually split, Mm-hmm. and the American Baptist Church and the Presbyterian Church and the United Methodist Church mm-hmm. and what's happening right now. And homosexuality was the leverage issue to accomplish that goal. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's been 40 years in process, and mm-hmm. that organizing to dis- confound the denominations has been very successful. Mm-hmm. So you, it, mm-hmm. we're... Mm-hmm. We're part of the larger uh, social political dynamic that's happening. Right. Uh, you recommended a book to me, a book about the Civil War, I think uh, post-Civil War time. The title's not coming to mind now. So thinking maybe something about freedom. I was at a talk last night in Jeff City at the library where uh, a new professor at Lincoln University, uh, Dr. Darius Watson was presenting the uh, wonderful presentation on the the myths and realities of race in America. And he mentioned that uh, there was a a big movement uh, or resistance movement against government telling people what to do, (laughs) Uh, Uh that... um, really sort of quashed the whole Reconstruction efforts. And it sounds like what you're saying happened in the 30s against the Roosevelt uh, New New Deal kind of thing was maybe just a, a, a follow-through of that same sentiment. Do you see that? Well, in, in our history, we'd come through the... Uh late part of the 19th century where the uh, huge corporations mm-hmm. had uh, free market reign, mm-hmm. railroads and uh, Standard Oil and mm-hmm. others. Right. And then that began to uh, shift, and Roosevelt brought uh, governmental accountability into that effort. Mm-hmm. There's a more recent book, too, by, I think, Jane Meyer called Dark Money. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I know that. That traces some of this. It's a uh, wonderful companion book to uh, One Nation Under God. All right. I I have them written down on my book list here. When you—I came to a page in your book about, well, (laughs) on Kindle, it's not a page in your book— (laughs) Right. Uh, But it's number three. (laughs) The body of Christ is an an inclusive community that binds together people across human barriers. Uh, Paul affirms the disappearance of diverse distinctions in Christ, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. 
In this way, the body of Christ crosses barriers of language, culture, gender, race, economic class, and sexual orientation. The body is open to every human being as a creature of God. That's part of the Methodist Church constitution in a way, isn't it? Well, it's part of the social principles, except for the last uh, 30-some years, the social principles have said the practice of homosexuality is uh, incompatible with the teachings of Christ. Hmm. So the the church has been schizophrenic. Ah, okay, okay. So that it's almost like an exception to that statement that that is there. Uh, yes, everything. Yeah, there but are this. many uh-huh. in the church who would disagree with my statement. Mm-hmm. Okay, and many churches that act as. Uh, uh, defense zones with strong walls and fences to keep those people out. Mm-hmm. When we're going to take a short station break, Art, uh, but when we come back, maybe if it's okay, uh, you can give some more um, insight into this organizing principles and how they really can. I mean, they could probably be used here at KOPN, or, or they could be used at, in, in most any institutional setting or community, and maybe you'll have some ways to help us see, as a guide, how to move in that direction. So we're going to take a short station break and be back with more Glocal News and Art Gafke in just a few moments. And welcome back to Glocal News and Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton. My guest today, Art Gafke, an old friend from now from uh, close to Reno, Nevada. And Art, do you want to give a shout out to anybody that you might know in Columbia? (laughs) Do you have family here? (laughs) Oh, yes. I have uh, brother, sister-in-law, and niece who... Help uh, train dogs. So, Roger... The teacher's pet. Roger Gafke is probably a familiar name to uh, many Colombians uh, from radio days and on through... Uh, I, he had work at uh, Mizzou, didn't he, for a while? Yeah, he's Professor Emeritus from mm-hmm. the J School and uh, for a long time a... Uh, assistant to the chancellor yeah yeah well good uh so the the connections to columbia are uh still right here at home uh for those of you listening today and we're speaking to roger's brother art uh so community organizing or let's take it back to what your real book is about a pastor uh, using principles of organizing, um, how does one get that motivation to have that kind of training? I, I understand what yours was. Uh, <laughs> well, that's a fascinating. How does one get motivation for doing anything? <laughs> but the 
the base of organizing starts in uh, building and seeking and nurturing relationships. There's something in organizing called one-to-ones, where one person sits with another. In this case, the pastor sitting with another person and uh, with curiosity, uh, being open to the other person's stories. You know, what what's going on in your life mm-hmm. uh, and where where are you from and who are your people mm-hmm. and what are your concerns and those relationships that are built become very important because that's where trust is built and uh, the sharing between the two people and then that uh, expands as more one-to-ones happen Mm-hmm. And then there are, can be small group gatherings in the beginning of the Methodist movement back in the uh, 18th century. There were gatherings, uh, weekly gatherings among poor people. And uh, the, the lead question was, with what have you been contending this week? And mm-hmm. that was a time in... Uh, England, where there was uh, high poverty, alcoholism, domestic violence, Mm -hmm. illiteracy. Mm -hmm. And as people began to share together and listen to each other, they affirmed their humanity. Then out of that, uh, institutions and movements of health care and education and other helpful reactions grew. Mm -hmm. And in some ways that uh, that principle of listening to one another and then uh, sharing it and acting on it is still at the core of uh, organizing. I'm familiar with a group called uh, the Compassionate Listening Project, um, mm-hmm. and they um, they have a, a very uh, focused purpose of going to places like Israel-Palestine and, and creating groups of listening uh, where, where they listen to each other and um, in small group meetings. So you're saying, first of all, it's a one-on-one listening and then a uh, commonality of people coming together to listen to each other. We're not calling this uh, therapy or group therapy. We're calling it just, uh, what, what are we calling this? Just Getting together to listen to each other. Building relationships. Building relationships. Community. The electronic age with uh, texts and emails and Snapchats and all really doesn't bring people together. What brings people together is sitting with each other and listening. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is very precious. It always has been and will be. Mm -hmm. When you're a pastor... I know. I was a pastor for a while. I felt as though I had a bit of a hidden agenda in my listening. How do you not have a hidden agenda when you're the pastor of a group and you're listening to someone? Well, your phrase hidden agenda is important because first of all, one needs to want no oneself. And uh, it is possible for us to not be conscious of our own agendas that still push and lead us. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So being uh, having a high degree of self-awareness, which includes a lot of uh, important feedback into our lives so that we uh, know ourselves becomes mm-hmm. very important. And then, as I say in the uh, book about pastoral ministry, I have three primary criteria to help support and nurture leadership, to strengthen the relationships among people to to spread that fabric of what I call covenantal relationships mm-hmm. and to uh, nurture and uh, strengthen the organization. And what I did combined those three. Other than that, I did not have, uh, and there was no hidden agenda. Mm-hmm. I was very open about that. Mm-hmm. So what I did in preaching and worship leadership and administration and uh, visitation and uh, financial management all had to do with that. So another statement in your book is that individuals and organizations operate out of self-interest and values. How does that phrase fit into what we've just been talking about, uh, relationship building? It's been helpful for me, uh, vital that I am always aware of what my self-interest is, and mm-hmm. that is the immediate personal self-interest mm-hmm. as well as the larger interest. Mm-hmm. And once I'm clear about that, I have the possibility of setting it aside or enlarging it. Oh, okay. When people are not aware of their own self-interest, what drives them, what they demand, uh, it still drives them even though they're not aware of it. Mm-hmm. And so being able to articulate it and have a consciousness about it is uh, very, very important. In your seminary training, do people, uh, are there classes on um, know thyself? <laughs> what did you go through to get such an insight as to your your own agendas hidden and otherwise in your self-interest and how does that take place for you well there were some classes that uh, were nudging in that direction mm-hmm. the religion and psychology class mm-hmm. i remember a, a seminar where an urban minister came and he said uh, when you're out there in the world the ground zero for uh, trusting others is do they deliver and do you deliver that is if you say something do you follow it up with action okay if you promise something you follow it up and i have had decades of experience of people who you can count on Mm -hmm. uh, some conservative some progressive Mm -hmm. and people who talk a good line but you know you cannot rely upon them I was in a nonpartisan political campaign where we planned a, a big fundraiser, and the person would check in in our gatherings every week and say, everything's going fine. And then a week before the event, we found out he hadn't done anything. Oh, my. And we had committed to uh, a high uh, uh, financial commitment to this event. Mm. And it fell apart because he did not deliver. Mm-hmm. And so delivering in the small ways and the, can you be counted on? 
And if somebody can't be counted on, is there uh, some listening that will help identify that and help that person? Mm-hmm. Or do you just not count on that person anymore? Yeah, because that's trust, right? You you lose oh, trust. Trust yeah. is the gold standard. Mm-hmm. And as you're observing your local world uh, as well as the larger world, um, how, what's our trust quotient? How, how's our trust quotient doing? Well, the the fear quotient is up. I've spoken for some decades now about uh, fear is the uh, top cash crop in our world. Hmm. It's seeded and cultivated, harvested, uh, packaged, mm-hmm. uh, and fearfulness and anxiety levels are... Uh, very, very high now. And when we're acting out of that, uh-huh. it becomes uh, dangerous. Mm-hmm. And uh, the trust, the, the forming relationships with people like ourselves and who are different than, than we are mm-hmm. becomes very important to break down that fearfulness. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the opposite of fear is faith. The opposite of fear is faith? Yes. See, all these years I said the opposite of fear is love. Maybe they're close to the same thing. I don't know. Well, we're wordsmiths. We can <laughs> kind of jimmy those in together. <laughs> right, right. Because you do say that fear is something that we can overcome. I'm not sure you use the word overcome, but I translated it that way. And yeah, you're saying, to, yeah, move beyond it. And, and you're saying one powerful way to do that is in building relationships. But this is a one-on-one to one-on-one to one-on-one. Um, well, and it's, well, it moves beyond that then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in congregations where I've had the fortune of pastoring, mm-hmm. there's a whole web of uh, trusting relationships. In one church, there was a family who uh, needed some financial support, and I tried, and I had been pastoring that church for six years and was highly trusted, but I tried to get some private fundraising going, and uh, it just didn't spark. And then when I visited an 80-plus-year-old woman, she said, I think we need to help so-and-so raise some money. So I went back to the same people I'd talked to before, and I said, Helen says we need to raise some money. <laughs> <laughs> and within two weeks, we delivered a $5,000 check to the family. Did Helen happen to sit on the front row at church? Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. She was not designated as a leader in any way. I see. Except she was a leader. Yeah. You have had experience uh, with very diverse populations, as, as I recall. Um, yes. I'm going to use the word uh, meek as in teachable. It, it seems like you opened yourself to being taught by these diverse communities. Is that fair? Absolutely. Uh, How can we learn about ourselves if we don't go outside our own sphere and look back? 
take that a little further, will you? Can you expand on that? That's a great statement. I, I agree. Can you? Well, again, to listen, uh, for four years I was pastor of a small uh, African-American church in Fresno mm -hmm. and meeting with the people and uh, learning a different church culture than I was used to mm -hmm. um, taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then uh, getting involved in the uh, local politics in Fresno with various uh, ethnic communities, I was very much a student. Mm -hmm. There are some funny stories about <laughs> that. Uh -huh. And I've just been reading uh, in the last few years about uh, the nature of the English language, which is uh, predominantly uh, nouns and adjectives and an objectifying language. And in contrast to other languages that are not objectifying but are more relational and uh, uh, in flux and movement, hmm. And I've been fascinating to understand my own English packaging of reality is part of the issue. Mm. What's the name of that book? Well, there are two of them. Uh, one is called Returning to the Teachings, set in Canada. An attorney is studying the, the uh, First Nations practice of restorative justice. Mm -hmm. He talks about the, uh, the stumblings of English. And the other is a much more recent book called uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And she's a native person from the New England area and a uh, Ph.D. scholar in botany. And both of them have uh, chapters on how English packages things, mm -hmm. you know. Dick's a retiree. <laughs> well, that doesn't quite box you in completely. There's a lot going on in your life. You have a lot of movement and learning still happening. Mm -hmm. Art's a pastor. Well, okay, what's that say? Mm -hmm. He's a radical. She's mm. kooky. We do a lot of that in English and in our current political Right. And uh, crises, we do a lot of uh, objectifying like mm -hmm. that. And the whole understanding of being objective, I've had pastoral supervisors say, well, we, for evaluations, we need to be objective. <laughs> well, that's an illusion. It, that it, does not exist. It does not. I, I say the same thing. Yeah. I say, yeah. Thank you for... Uh... <laughs> so, so supporting a, an idea supporting that you didn't you. know that I, <laughs> that I had. I yeah. think I knew that. I read your book. Oh, well, okay. Okay. Yeah, good. You know, talking about uh, diverse populations, I, I'm picturing you back in Columbia, back in the Wesley Foundation during your college days, and I had I'd already gone south, um, physically, <laughs> directionally south, and <laughs> and you and a group of uh, of Wesley Foundation members with uh, Bob Younce, the director, stood on the steps of the United Methodist Church in some kind of uh, advocacy or protest. Uh, can can you describe that briefly? 
I think that happened the year after I left. Oh, it did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because of the yeah. civil rights issues and uh, yeah, things that were going on, trying to move right. the church. Yeah, just giving testimony. Mm-hmm. But I I heard about it, but I was not there. In fact, one of the people who was part of that now lives in Reno, and she and I are good friends through all these years. Hmm. Was Ray Hayes the same year with you, or a year back? No, he was uh, one year. I think he graduated from Hickman in uh, 1960. And you, I could be wrong. And you were 59? 59, yeah. Uh-huh. You were with my brother uh, then yes. graduating. Yeah, okay. So Ray probably would have been there in terms of that particular event. Okay, that's good, f- again, to help clarify. But it shows the activism of the organization, the Wesley Foundation, that you had just moved on from to uh, seminary, uh, yes. Yale Divinity School. Yeah. So are you active in uh, consulting or, or uh, uh, participating in social issues today? Well, currently in Nevada, the Nevadans for the Common Good, which is uh, in the Las Vegas area, has interest in expanding into this more northern part of Nevada. So I'm involved with conversations mm-hmm. about doing that here. Mm-hmm. You, and so we're, we're, there are a lot of conversations that have to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, they're, they're fortunate to have you in the, in the area. You have gifts that I would like to uh, highlight more than we and and learn from more than we have time for today. Um, An hour goes quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Always does. Any comments as to how um, some of the ideas we've talked about impact either positively or negatively our political, international relations? We're we're at a tough time. Fear fear has uh, taken another uh, little leap. Yes, and it uh, reinforces that uh, human history is always in movement. Some of my friends here in the Reno area remind once in a while there have been enduring times in the history of this nation when others have been at great risk and uh, dehumanized and oppressed. And uh, so this is, it's a new thing for some of us, Mm. but it's an enduring process Mm. for all of us. And the the geopolitical realities are continually in flux. There was a BBC program just recently about the uh, changing geopolitical world as we move into renewable energy and away from uh, carbon-based energies and how that will affect uh, international relations mm-hmm. and uh, immigration and uh, refugee status and we're in a great flux it's not fixed mm-hmm. as well as our weather uh, fluctuations oh yeah that's yeah. that's part of it mm-hmm. yeah yeah well boy my prayers go out for the uh, Puerto Ricans Puerto Ricans Australians yeah Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so many others. Understanding that flux is a constant of sorts. Change change is a constant. 
do you have a an approach to when you say, use the word faith uh, is the way out of fear? To me, it it feels a little light to say, "Well, just have faith in God." That yeah, that's that doesn't that do is it. a little light, um, right? So, what is how does how does what does faith mean in in this context of flux? It's a, a very deep assurance that there is a potent reality which we could call love or grace mm-hmm. that is more powerful than the disruptive, uh, ominous realities that we are uh, dealt every day. Wonderful. I think that's a quote worth closing on. <laughs> I'll be quiet. I don't know that you could repeat it word for your word, or maybe you can. I know I can't. Well, it's on tape, so it will. Uh, okay. It, it it will be part of this podcast, and I'm going to make an effort to then even capture that uh, in writing so that I can display it. Uh, it's a powerful statement, Art. I appreciate that. Well, I could give another one like it, but I couldn't <laughs> copy it. Well, so bless your you. heart. Oh, thank you. I love you a lot, and it, it's so good to uh, spend this, this hour with you. Uh, we'll have to do it more often. Yes, and hello to Marsha. And to Elena as well, yeah. Okay. And, and folks, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, remember— Uh, wherever you are that is your world Uh, please leave your world cleaner more peaceful and more loving than you found it because if it is to be it is up to us talk to you soon take care